Today's podcast is with my friend Patty Sherwood. Patty is a realtor with Long and Foster, located in Jefferson and Berkeley County, West Virginia. In this podcast, we discuss the technicalities and steps of buying a house. Let's listen as we break it down for brackets. Hi, Patty. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're going to have a podcast and we're going to discuss a little bit about being a realtor and um, the process of buying a house. Uh, But first, uh, Patty, tell me, who is Patty Sherwood? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised in northeastern Pennsylvania, so I spent a good number of my early years, about half my life there so far, and I went to uh, private schools for about 13 years and got a very good education, had a lot of fun, made a lot of friends, and when I finished high school, I was having a hard time trying to decide what to do. And I didn't feel I was ready to go to college, but when the fall rolled around and all my friends were starting school, I jumped in as well. And I learned that I was not necessarily making good decisions on my own as a young adult. What, what were you studying? I was pre-engineering at the time, which was also a good indication I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, what, who guided, did like your parents guide you that way or friends or you're like, well? No, I was just trying to decide what to do. At the time, I thought I was interested in environmental engineering, but as we've discussed, you don't know what you don't know. It's not like I really had a lot of information to make those decisions. Because you were 18. Because I was 18. And you could do anything you want, which I think, you know, as time goes by, makes it harder for younger people all the time because the options are basically unlimited. So what I had to do was get into school, into college, and figure out that I wasn't good at making 8 o'clock classes. Um, I excelled in calculus. I was the only female in my class, but um, was at the top of that class. But calculus was only one class, so I didn't do well in my other classes and ended up leaving school, went to work full-time for a couple of years, only to find out that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. Move the mic back a tiny bit, please. There you go. Okay. So then what, what happened next? So while I was working, I decided to go back to school, which I did. I started out at my local community college, and two years later, I earned an associate's degree. And at graduation, my mom, uh, my dad had passed by that time, but my mom was sitting with my mom and she said to me, I didn't think you could do it. Okay. And that was okay because my response to her was, I didn't think I could either. But I did. And that's when I discovered how much I loved learning 
So it wasn't about school and taking tests. It was about learning and gathering knowledge and using it and making decisions with it. So I went on and earned a bachelor's degree. I graduated first in my major. And then not too long after that, um, and I did all this. You mean head of the class first in your major? In my major, yes. That's awesome. Yes, it was. And it was a surprise. I didn't know it until the day before graduation. And um, so that was one of my first big awards. I earned the Wall Street Journal Academic Achievement Award because I had the highest average in my major, which was marketing. So it was fun. I still remember that day. And then uh, I worked for um, the American Red Cross Blood Services. So I helped save lives every day. It was pretty important work, donor recruitment. Yeah, definitely. And through, while through marketing, I, yep, I was in the marketing department. We called it donor recruitment. I can't, I can't imagine anybody who, who could say that they had not seen a, um, an ad from the Red Cross. Probably not. Right. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's in subway stations. It's, it's at hospitals. It's, it's pretty much everywhere. Okay. I'm going to say you are totally responsible for every bit of marketing is that something we could say? I had a geographic area. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. <laughs> and yes, I was responsible for that. Meeting with people, developing plans to uh, attract donors. It's a little challenging getting people to give blood. I don't something about needles or something like that. Um, but it really was fascinating work and truly life saving. You can't say that everybody gets to do that every day. Sure. But while I was doing that, I earned my MBA. Your MBA? Awesome. My MBA. So <clears throat> the girl that couldn't cut college the first round ended up earning almost the highest degree that I possibly could. So um, with that, I uh, worked for a couple of different companies after the American Red Cross. I worked for a healthcare company. I've done work for um, the American Cancer Society. In there, I got married, moved around a few times with my husband. Who'd so you marry? I married John Sherwood. How'd you meet him? I met him while I was working at the American Red Cross Blood Services. Was he he also working there, or? He was heading up one of the hospitals that was in the region that I covered, and he was, thankfully, already, before I even met him, a very strong supporter of the blood program. So I was able to um, get to know him through that, and he was involved with the um, overall region. So I'm just, we met at meetings a lot. Sure. Um, got to visit him at his work, and he supported the work I was doing in his community. And we had a mutual friend that I later found out she was telling him a lot of nice things about me, and she was telling me a lot of nice things about him. So okay, sure. we credit Mary Lou with uh, helping plant those seeds. That's awesome. So um, after getting married and... MBA and undergrad, and what sounds like a successful career in marketing, what ultimately brought you, or did we miss any major milestones? Probably 
the year 2000, mm -hmm. we moved to the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia. And when we did that, um, I did a couple of short-term things initially after we moved. I did some contract work for the state health department um, and a few other things. Then I started working as the communication director of a, a local church. Then I moved to a bigger church. Then eventually I uh, started working full-time in higher education. I had done some adjunct instruction when I was in Pennsylvania mostly on public speaking and communications. So I ended up working in higher education at our local community college here for a few years. Which school is that? Blue Ridge Community and Technical College. And as an adjunct, what were you teaching? Well, there I was the business degree program coordinator. So I coordinated all the administrative, developing the degrees and all of the pieces associated with that. And I also taught. And in when the you classroom. mean developing the degrees, you mean, I guess, you have to take these eight courses and to, I guess, what qualify and then. Well, take it was these determining which coursework was appropriate for the degree. In the community college realm, the goal is to meet employer needs and expectations. So, in part of my administrative work was meeting with advisors from local businesses and industry, finding out what they needed, seeing where the gaps were between education and what people were going to be doing on the job. So then either uh, organizing coursework to pull that together or I created some courses in order to do that. And with that, I also had uh, teaching responsibilities in the classroom. So I what taught... Was, yeah, what were some classes you taught? Marketing business ethics, business communications. Um, one of the courses I developed was business etiquette, and that covered everything from how to have a conversation with someone, interviewing skills, focusing on writing and verbal communication skills as well. Things that sounds that like an entirely different podcast topic right there. That sounds like it'd be a business etiquette is a very intriguing to me and it should be because yeah. it separates a lot of people from success and non-success sure okay so after blue ridge i mean you moved here in 2000 so that's 20 years ago yikes i know right and then i guess how many years i mean I, we don't need a full timeline but that's um that's really neat to, to hear that you got, I mean, I admire anybody who has an MBA because it's something I don't have. It's something I've kind of always wanted. But due to my work addiction, there would never be time to carve out stuff that I egotistically think I already know for the most part, or I feel like I've learned in the field. But I know that there's so much I could learn because meeting with other business owners or other business academics, I always find to be very um very good for me and i always find that when business owners get together and talk about the challenges they have we always come out of there with an education on how other people are approaching the problems so i guess the hunger for that knowledge is actually part of the reason why i started this podcast is to learn 
from people. And it's weird that I want to say that not knowing you had an MBA, I've been not having as technical a conversations with you as I would like to, Patty. You know, like in our, on our unrecorded conversations, I would love to just pick your brain on what you know or things that really stuck out to you. So we'll talk about that some other time offline. You learn in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be in the classroom. One of the advantages, and I think this is one of the reasons why I eventually took to learning in the classroom, almost instant gratification. So you take a class, it's a limited period of time, you get a grade. If you do a good work, you get a good grade. Right. If you do enough of those classes, you get a degree. I should say you earn a degree. Mm -hmm. So when I am teaching, I always tell students, make the most of it now, because once you're out of college, nobody's given you awards and certificates on a regular basis. So That's true. That is true. All right, cool. Did we, did we miss anything? I mean, I well, guess we need to talk about how you became a realtor, right? Or why that, how that transitioned. I was in higher education, and I think it's just true for most people, although everyone doesn't always act on it. We do, we need new experiences, and we also, as we gain experiences, learn more about our strengths and weaknesses and how we can utilize those, what we're good at, what really we excel at, what other people come to us for. So age, you know, as you're aging and you're kind of contemplating where you've been and where you're going to go next, all of those things came together and I was considering what my options were for my future. And almost on, I'm going to say on accident, but in my search for looking for new things to learn. And I've done that pretty much now most of my adult life, whether I'm going to a Bros and Bras event to learn about running or um, if I'm going to take a class in painting or any of those, I just, in that learning, I signed up for a real estate pre-licensure exam course. And I went through that and I learned a lot and I decided at that point that that was going to be my next step that I was going to sit for my real estate licensure exam, which I did while I was still working full time, and I launched my real estate business. Not only because I was interested in real estate, but I also learned about myself over all of those years that I didn't realize until I got into real estate was that I am wired to be an entrepreneur. I had always had jobs, a lot of them where I worked independently and got to make a lot of my own decisions, but that I wasn't the one driving the overall organization or um, a project perhaps. But now I do that every day in my own business. Those are very wise words. I love hearing all that. So was there anything else about your family, anything else in your background you think would be great for people to know? 
I am blessed. We've mentioned John Sherwood before. Uh, probably the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. Uh, grounded me, stuck by me, everything I've ever done, ever tried, ever failed at, ever succeeded at, he's been there for me. So uh, That's kudos wonderful. to him. Yeah. That's yeah, and he has two great sons um, that have families, and um, actually we'll be seeing, we'll all be getting together in a couple of weeks, so I'm very blessed. Very That's blessed really good. That way. That's really great. So let's get to the meat of the topic here. Um, I'd like to start off, what are some misconceptions about the real estate industry or being a realtor or when to hire a realtor? Give me some misconceptions that you think are out there and pretty obvious, but maybe people are glazing over. I would say I'd like to start with the misconception that all real estate agents are the same because they're not. And um, one of the other misconceptions is that people don't think they need to connect with a real estate agent or a realtor until they find a house that they want to buy. So one of the things that I think the misconceptions are based on is, in general, people don't understand the difference between a real estate agent and a realtor. Well, hold on. Let me back up one second because you said you think sometimes people don't need a realtor. Now, I've seen situations where and I saw one literally, I think yesterday, somebody is selling their house and they literally just put a sign in their yard saying, or this property is for sale, call this number. Now, if I'm a guy and I've got money or cash or find, I don't even know, some sort of loan, let's say, I can call them, I can buy that house. Or on the flip side, does that mean that person's trying to sell this house without a realtor, which I assume is most likely because he has a sign used with spray paint for the most part saying he's selling the house? Is he just trying to avoid using realtors for reasons I don't understand? Or is that what you mean when you say, I don't need a realtor? And it could be on either the buying or the selling side. In the sales side, which I think we're going to talk about another time in more detail, is a little bit different. On the buying side, I think that goes hand in hand with one of the other misconceptions that what we see on reality TV is actually real. And if people enjoy, and there's nothing wrong with that, enjoy watching shows like House Hunters and it all looks good because it's a very slickly produced production and not necessarily all real, but it makes it look easy. You go look at a couple of houses, you make an offer, boom, three weeks later, then they're showing you people moving in, having a great time. But there's a reason why I've been working for almost seven years as a licensed realtor and a reason why I continue to take continuing education coursework. There's a reason why I have to have insurance to do my business. There's a reason why I work with a lot of other professionals in other areas to get the job done. And that's because 
real estate transactions are very complex. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up for a second. So in the the only realtor I've ever worked with is you, Patty. You know, and um, you helped us. Good choice, Kevin. Thank you. I, I try to make educated decisions. Patty has sold a house for me and Jenny, and she has helped us buy a house. And there is a series of documents that have to be signed throughout the process that um, can seem pretty technical, and they must be in place for a reason. And I assume if you didn't, if you weren't using a realtor, some of those documents may not be there, and I may not be as protected as if I had hired a realtor versus not hiring a realtor. I assume that's correct. Protection is a good aspect for you to expect from good representation, and when you have a realtor, you are being represented. So my responsibility as a realtor and my fiduciary responsibility is to put your best interests first. So I work to make sure you understand what you're signing because all of that paperwork, some of that is about your own protection. Some of that is about your responsibilities in that transaction. So if you don't know what you're signing or potentially even worse if you're not signing anything and you have no protection then when you're looking at probably what is for most people their largest financial investment right there's a lot riding on the line on that and me as your realtor my job that I do is looking out for your interests I don't make decisions for you. I provide the information you need to make decisions. But if you're going to make a decision, then I make sure that you understand the results of all of that. That's great. And I I definitely felt that way. I know that buying a house can seem tense and stressful to some extent. And you want a house, and you've gone through the steps of buying a house, which we'll discuss here in a few minutes, but ultimately you just want the process done. And I know that working with you, I feel like every form and everything we were signing was explained. And if I had questions, you had the answers. That's, that's really great. Let's move on to the next one. I think you mentioned, was it the difference between a realtor and a real estate agent? Is that yes. the differences? Okay. In West Virginia, you need a license to practice real estate. The only exception to that is if you wanted to sell your own home. You don't need a license to sell your own property. Okay. But if you want representation in that process, even for your own home, you're going to hire someone that has a license. In West Virginia, that course that I told you about that I started with, that was required. I had to pass that course, 90 hours of education about real estate in order to qualify to sit for the licensure exam. So I did that, I passed the test, and the state of West Virginia granted me a real estate license, but I did not stop there. I became a realtor by joining the National Association of Realtors. 
the difference between a realtor and uh, just a real estate agent is with the National Association of Realtors, I am bound by a code of ethics that goes beyond the law. So when you're licensed, you're required to obey the law. When you're a realtor, you're also bound to follow the code of ethics. I love that. that that's really good. It's good. So in other words, you can, it's a additional layer of accountability or, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, yeah, it's accountability and expectations because we know you're going to do the right thing over um, possibly not doing the right thing. Okay, cool. Uh, another... What's another misconception? You said the internet? We mean, so if I go on Zillow or Realtor or whatever, whatever, property.com, and it says that this house is $350,000 and it's available right now, it's possible that it's not? Is that what you mean? Or is it a different version of the internet is not accurate? And that's the misconception a lot of people have that the internet is accurate. So there are plenty of websites out there, and people love to use them, and they're great tools, don't get me wrong. But when you have information on a website, it is only as accurate as the process that picked that up from somewhere, or it's only as accurate as an estimate of data that was gathered from who knows where exactly. So one of the reasons why you need a good realtor in whether you're buying or selling a home is you want to make sure you have accurate information. No buyer wants to pay more than they have to for a house, and no seller wants to sell their home for less than it's worth. You can't necessarily get a number that reflects that off the internet because the internet I was going to say the internet has never been in your home. You've accessed it from your home, but has never seen the condition of a home. And that's where my experience comes in. Okay, so are there other ways or examples you could give where the internet may not be accurate besides the person who's managing that website or how the algorithms work? Is there another thing that people should look out for when they're shopping for homes? Well, you sort of alluded to it. There's frequently homes that show for sale on internet websites that aren't actually on the market. Or there'll be data about that home that's not accurate, whether it's something about the number of bedrooms or the location. So I bought a house recently that said it was a two-bathroom house, and there was a a wall with a toilet and a rusty shower in an unfinished basement. And they said that it was a two, I guess by definition, there were two bathrooms, but. Were they usable bathrooms? Right. That's, that, that, that's, that was the trick. And that, I guess that initially got my attention. I was like, okay, cool. Look, a three bedroom, two bath. Let's go take a look at it. Hopefully this is the right house. This was in a, this was in a different state. This was in Southern Virginia. So I wasn't with you, Patty, but the, um, I guess that's one way where the internet could not be accurate. And, I, and I, I think most people, they want the internet to be accurate, and they want to see what they're looking at when they're looking at these clearing houses 
websites where you can see what all these properties are available, you can assume that something's not going to be right or something's not going to be totally accurate, but you just kind of move, you move on because people just want to consume the data and get their options and choices as available as quickly as possible. Um, and I can do that for people because they don't have to rely on searching 37 other sites that may or may not have accurate information. I can connect my clients directly with the multi-list system. So they're getting the most accurate, the most current information. And the multi-list system is the MLS that we all hear about. Yes. So what's another misconception? One of the things that... um, when I referred to the buying and selling process is pretty complex and there's a lot of pieces to it. And I think we're going to talk about the pieces in the buying process. But one of the things people ask me about is the phrase under contract and people automatically assume that the house is no longer available on the market. And that may not necessarily be accurate. And you can see that a house is under contract because it might say it on the website that you were stalking this house because you want it so bad. Or it could be in a neighborhood you drive through regularly and a the agent or the realtor has put a sign on top of the for sale sign that now says under contract, which to me seems like it's just bragging. Because if it's under contract, are you just letting everybody know it's under contract? So stop looking to buy this house? Or are you putting it under contract saying, look what a great realtor I am, how fast this house went under contract? Like I, I, I see that and I wonder, are you trying to run off any other potential buyers? Or are you just saying, look, we're done. It only took four days under contract. Don't bother looking anymore. Could be both ways. Okay. But it depends on what kind of contract there is. Because there may be what we call a kickout clause in that contract, which means that the sellers are open to entertaining other offers. That's a great misconception then. So if, even though it says under contract, you don't know, but your realtor can find out. Correct. That is awesome. Are there any other misconceptions? You said reality TV is not legit. I mean, come on. I see these re- remodel shows where they put... They're remodeling a house, and they literally put a 20-second clip of some painters. I know painting, and I always throw things at the TV when I see what a weird job some of these things are doing. And I know how long it takes to paint a whole house, but they they, they give you 20 seconds. But I think it's really easy to absorb the concept that, oh, my, we could totally re- remodel this house in a matter of two months or so. It'd be easy. Is that what you mean, or is there a different version of the reality TV you're talking about? No, that's pretty much the same version. And I think the misconception is because people see things like that happening, happening quickly, and then maybe even some of those shows do portray homeowners that don't have a lot of technical skills doing their own thing that that can lead people to believe that it's easy to do or that you can add $50,000 of value to your home by changing out the toilet seat or things like that. So um, where I caution people both in buying and selling 
is that looks can be deceiving. Mm -hmm. So when I'm working with buyers and we're touring homes and they see maybe a fresh coat of paint and a couple of new fixtures and it all looks shiny new, I'm helping them see the things that are not so shiny new about that house. Not to say that that's gonna deter them from purchasing that home, but those are the things that overall are gonna affect value and their decision-making process. So my job is to look beyond the shiny new part and um, help them get the information they need on the whole house to make a good decision. Okay, I get it. I, I like when I watch, and I frankly don't even know the names of the shows, but Jenny and I like to watch these shows a lot. The um, They'll buy a house and they're wearing like shorts and a t-shirt you know, they're wearing summer gear. And as the house is nearing completion, everybody's bundled up in like down jackets and things like that, or the trees have changed. So it really can be a four or five, even eight month process sometimes, especially if you're not really squared away with the operators you need to do a, a remodel. Well, great. Let's, um, let's jump into the steps of, um, buying a house so if, if I want to buy a house walk me through um, what you consider to be a sequential order of how a house is purchased and what me as a buyer should be thinking and how a realtor specifically you how do you help with that process and I do help with that process so the first step should always be finding your realtor that's before I find the house I want to buy Ideally, yes. Is that how it usually works? Not always. Right. So I guess if, if I was in a situation where I knew I was moving to a town, I could say, hey, help me find a house in the right kind of neighborhood. You would really come in handy then because you know the turf. Whereas if I wanted to move from the town I live in to the same town I live in just into a different neighborhood, I would already have some of my own information. So I, I am in, in my limited understanding of the process. To me, it's I find the house first, then I get a hold of you. Tell me why that's not the right order. And those, so you, a couple of different scenarios there, as well as are you a first time home buyer? Even if you're not a first-time home buyer, when was the last time you went through this process? Because this is what I do every day. But when somebody buys a home, they might do it once in a lifetime. They might do it once every 10 years, those kinds of things. But whether you're moving from a different area or even in town, one of the things that I can provide for you is that accurate information. So yes, you may have driven by a house and you've noticed it, but there may be other homes that would meet your needs even better that you're not aware of yet. So information so, is crucial. So let's say I get a hold of Patty Sherwood. Patty, what are the, some examples of questions you would ask me getting to know me as a potential client? Or how does that initial meeting go? Give me a, a short version of that. Just a conversation like we're having here. And the goal would be for me to 
um, help you get what information you need about me to decide that we're a good match to work together. The other part of that is for me to get the information from you that I need to launch your search. So we talk about why you're moving, what kind of home you're looking for, what kind of lifestyle you want to have, what kind of budget are you talking about, what's important to you that's going to meet those lifestyle needs that you have. The only words that stuck out the most to me in that or budget, because it always, I feel like it always comes down to budget. People want as much as they can get. Sure. For the lowest amount of money possible. And everybody, mostly that I know, does have a budget. You have some kind of an upper limit. And when I talk and connect with buyers, one of the first things I'm gonna recommend for them, if they have not already, is to then connect with a lender. Assuming they're not gonna have cash to make their purchase, they're gonna have to finance that purchase. And the lender is important for several reasons. And one, the lender's gonna tell you how much you can borrow for a home, but to me, the more important information at that point for buyers is not how much can you borrow, but how much do you want to borrow based on what your monthly payment is going to be. And that goes back to that lifestyle question um, that I was talking about when we first connect. Do you want to have all of your money going towards your house or do you want to have a nice house and still whether it's travel or go out with your friends every week or you know do other hobbies so you may not want to max out what you can borrow that sounds like a conversation for the lender not necessarily the realtor and that I always want people to have that conversation with their lender just like i want them to be comfortable with me and confident they're going to share a lot of personal information with that lender as well but that lender is going to be on the lookout for that client's best interest as well and going to provide the information not tell you how much to spend on a house but provide you the information so you can decide how much you're going to spend on a house Okay, cool. So we've covered you need a lender. I mean, I'm sorry, you need a realtor. Definitely hire a realtor. That's the recommendation as one of the first steps. Second step would be have a consultation with the realtor about what kind of house you want, but probably hand-in-hand with that, maybe, maybe find a lender. Because a lender, I assume, is going to tell you, Look, I know you want the $350,000 house, but we can really only, what's it called, pre-approve? Is that when you're pre-approved for a loan? When you first talk with a lender and they'll get some preliminary information from you, based on that... You mean financial can, information? Yep. They okay. can pre-approve you up to a certain level. So let's say they pre-approve me for $300,000, even though the house I want is three fifty. that's when you work with me to specifically if I have to mandatory find a house. If I'm moving somewhere for a job, I have to find a house. If 
if I'm finding out the house that I really want is just out of my affordability, then that's almost a deal breaker at that point. Um, right? Well, it depends. And that's why it's important to have relationships with a professional realtor, a professional lender. Because let's say that perhaps you can only get pre-approved for a certain level, but in your heart, you really want to be at a higher level, a good lender is going to be able to counsel you on steps you can take to potentially enhance your financial flexibility. So That's great. That's great. And, and I know down the road I plan on um, having a podcast with a lender to learn more about the lending process. And There's how the a lot de- to learn. There. How the decisions are made. And hopefully it's just a 101. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with that sort of stuff. But, okay. So... I'm excited. I'm a home buyer. Now you've showed me a few options, and I say, Patty, I don't care about any more options. I see the one I want. I want this house. The house is picked as far as I'm concerned. Do you want to give me some examples of, well, what happens next? I've picked my house. So when you find the one, and I always tell people that you'll know when you do for a variety of reasons. The next step is we're going to put together an offer to be presented to the seller of that home. And the goal in crafting that offer is to get it accepted. So in our area, we're going to write up an offer that covers about 47 pages 47 pages. But before you get worried about that, and we will go over all of those, because remember we talked about I don't want you signing off on something that you don't understand uh, what you're signing on. But there's only a few points of criteria that you really have to decide on at that point when you're making that offer. Those include things like the sales price, what your price you're going to offer for that home. Hold on. Hold okay. on. How much, how much do you want to say this house costs, like on the internet or what it says on MLS? What, what do you want to put the number at? So Let's you, do 250 Okay, so the house is listed, right, mm-hmm. at 250 And that's what the seller says they want for this house. I guess I'm losing track, and this is why I want to have this podcast. So when you say we craft the offer, does that mean – and again, for me, it's all coming down the numbers in my head. It's just so simple. Does that mean you – do you help me find the number, or do I tell you what I think the number should be, or – I'm sorry. I'm probably getting – I'm getting in front of you on this. So continue what you're saying. I don't want to – So when you're determining the sales price – There's different values associated with a home. List price is, that's what it is. It is the price that the seller has put that house on the market as. Now, when we talk about selling, the list price can end up being the sales price, but what will drive the price, the sales price that the buyer is gonna offer will be the information that I provide to the buyer 
on what we call comparable sales. Okay. So I would provide to you as the buyer, and we went through this, when you purchased your home, I shared information on what similar homes in that area had sold for in the previous months. So that it's not like some random figure, because a seller could put their house on the market for any amount. But you'll know what homes have sold for that are like that one that you're going to buy, which will give you a good idea of what market value is. Okay, for that so home. an example of that is the house that I want to buy is 250. You say, okay, house A, about two blocks from there, sold for 250. And house B, um, a quarter mile from where you are in the same neighborhood, though, sold for 240. House C, one mile away, different neighborhood, sold for 220. But they're all similar houses. That's how we determine comps is say, okay, you, you then, from the way I understand it, okay, so this house might be worth 250 because it's comparable to these three other houses. But it seems to be priced correctly or a tiny bit high based on other properties in the area. So then what's next? So we look at those other properties and you kind of, because even though homes are going to be similar, they're not going to be exact. So you kind of plus and minus. Is this home you're looking at, is it newer than maybe the recent sales or is it older? Is it in good condition? Has it been well maintained or not as much? Is that half bath in the basement? a real half bath or a sketchy kind of half bath. Right. And I have to back up for a second because when I say the house is picked, that's assuming we went around and looked at a few houses, right? That's the, that's the assumption is that we went around and looked at houses together. I always encourage that right? because that helps a buyer understand where values are at in a local market. If you're only looking at one house, you have nothing to relate that to. But if you see a couple of houses at least, and it doesn't take that many for a buyer to really feel comfortable understanding where the values are in a market. So I guess when you're determining values also, and for, for me, again, it just keeps coming back to numbers in my head. The comps are already sold but we can look at houses that are similar, that are also for sale in a similar environment if they're available. And then you can then use the values of other houses and how they're priced to justify the price of how you determine an offer for the house you want to buy. Such as, hey, those carpets do have some stains from pets or they're not the ideal paint colors. Or tell me if I'm getting off track here. Well, and we would talk about the difference between the things that set value versus, say, cosmetic things. So carpet can be an issue. Maybe, maybe not. The other pieces that are going to determine the current value, because you're right, when we look at comps, we're looking at things that sold in the past. 
the other things that we're going to look at is what else is on the market. Is there competition for this house, or is this the only house that's available in a three-mile radius? So when you you mean competition, you're talking about from a selling point of view, the house is competing with other houses. You're not saying other buyers as competition, or is that what you're saying? Could be both. Okay. Because if there's, for example, if there's three houses on that street that are sort of similar for sale, that can affect the sales price that you're going to offer as a buyer. But if there's a, not enough homes and there's more buyers in the market than are available for sale, right, that's your basic economics 101, supply and demand. When there's a higher demand than there is supply, that will also affect value. Okay. So again, I keep interrupting you. That's okay. So we these are good questions. We're working on crafting the offer, and we're going to yes. part of crafting the offer, which is alleged, which is forty-seven page long, and again, that's that's deep. But you don't have to be afraid of that because I'm going to walk you through it, and we're going to isolate the key components. Okay. Sales price, contingencies, closing date. Well, don't don't blow my mind just yet. We okay. still have a few more things to hit here, so. In crafting the offer, you help determine things or the items of value. What's next? Or what's another part of that? So once we determine what you want to offer as the sales price, we're going to talk about the other main components of that offer. When do you want to close? And that's when we actually, when the house is actually handed over to you. That We call that the closing date. We're going to talk about contingencies. You're going to make this offer, and it's going to be contingent on a few things. For example, when I work with a buyer, I am always going to encourage that buyer to get a home inspection. So when you make an offer on a house, there's certain things you can see, but as a buyer, you're making assumptions about the overall condition of that home. So your price is based on those assumptions, the price that you offer. When you have a home inspection, your home inspector is either gonna confirm or or change your opinion of the condition of that home. So you wanna have an expert home inspector, somebody that knows more about home construction and condition than you do. Can I pause you again? Yes. For my simple brain to pick up on some of this stuff. Did we just gloss over the offer? So in other words, hey, you want two fifty for your house. I would like to offer you two forty five. But that two forty five mm-hmm. is gonna have other pieces of that offer tied to it. Right. So what I'm saying is help me with the offer. So kind of give me the Cliff Notes version before we coordinate with the home inspector. So, hey, neighbor. Well, requiring that you have a home inspection is part of the offer. Okay. So when you present that 245 sales price to the seller... The seller's also going to see, well, what else are they 
tying to that contingencies. Contingencies. Home inspection. Home inspection. Mm-hmm. Radon testing okay. is very common in okay. our area. But it could also include things like do you already own a home that you have to sell in order to purchase this home? So you might have a home sale contingency. You mean the person selling the house has not bought another house yet? That's on the seller's side. There can be a contingency that says the seller has to find his new home. But I'm talking about as the buyer, if you own a home right now, oh, do you have to sell that home? So in other words, I can't buy, lending would say, most likely, that I can't if buy. If you can't have two mortgages at one time. Hey, I want to buy your house for 240 It's contingent on home inspection, radon inspection, and if we agree on this, I have to sell my house before I can buy your house. That's a contingency, a buyer's contingency. That is, a con- yes, a buyer's contingency, which is something that we would have talked about very early on in our consultation process, because if you do have to sell that home first, then we need to work on that, that before is- you fall in love with your next house. Oh, man. Okay. Okay, cool. So I feel like I feel like we covered crafting an offer without going too heavy for the podcast or did we miss any components that we need to include that that we should share right now i don't think we have to get into any more detail there's just like i said in that big long offer there's some key decisions that the buyer has to make so we've the the major ones we've just talked about nice so the next thing i'm assuming would happen is the seller says i accept the offer or i'm going to counter this offer and say that closing date may be a little too soon for us because if you want to close october 31st we weren't able to move to our new house until november 20th that would be a counter right and that when the buyer crafts that offer and we get the buyer or buyers to sign off on that, we present it to the seller, Mm -hmm. and the seller can either accept it as it is, which can happen if you present a good, strong offer. The seller might say, nope, don't like anything about it. I'm not even going to engage in that. So it could reject the offer, or the seller can counter on one or any of the terms okay. that you've presented in your offer. So as the example you've presented, the seller might say, I'll accept the other terms, but I counter with a longer closing date. Okay. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. So at that point, it comes back to you, the buyer, and then you get to decide are you okay with that? Can you accept that new closing date? Are you going to walk away from the whole thing right now because you don't like that? Or maybe you counter back and you say, well, I can extend the closing date, but only to a certain period because I have to be out of my rental or whatever. So 
We go back and forth until everybody agrees on all the terms. How often does a home get two or three offers all in the timeline that is set to accept or reject the offer? So then the seller's like, wow, somebody has offered us 245 with these contingencies, and somebody has offered us 235 with these contingencies, and then somebody offered us full asking price, but they have outrageous contingencies. How often does that happen? In our local market, at certain price points, it's not unusual for a home that's priced correctly and in good condition to get multiple offers. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. So it's not when a buyer is ready to buy, we don't just look at what has sold before, we look at the current status of the market. Because your offer that you craft and present to a seller may differ if you're in a very competitive market than if, well, there's plenty of houses and hardly any buyers out there. Nice. Okay. Which is why you need a good experienced realtor to help you through that process. Right. And I don't know any different, frankly. So I I couldn't really understand. Like I said, I've worked with you. So I feel like I'm getting the same services that you're talking about when I do hire you as compared to somebody else. So but the next the next term on my my notes say ratified contract. That's when the buyer and the seller have agreed to the terms and everybody signs off on it. Then we hit the ground running in the next phase of the home buying process. Until there's a ratified contract your lender's not going to take additional steps. You're not going to have a home inspection. Maybe the seller's not even going to pack to move. So the ratified contract means we have agreed, both the buyer and the seller have agreed to these terms. Now we're moving forward to meet those contingencies, to meet that closing date. Okay, Patty. So Real quick, though, I'm seeing some other things in my notes here of things I need to have clarified. Um, and I guess this falls back to the counter offers. Um, the terms are seller subsidies and closing cost assistance. Can you break those down? I, I hate to go back for a second here, but I feel like that's something that should be uh, discussed to some extent. Seller subsidy is one of the potential terms when we were talking about those few key terms you have a sales price when a buyer is purchasing the home the buyer has some costs associated with that purchase and their financing if they're going to take out a mortgage when they engage with a lender the lender is going to charge interest over the life of that loan, but there's also some upfront costs. And when you talk with your lender, you'll find out a little bit about what those are. But the buyer can, depends on the price of the home, can be looking at a few thousand dollars in closing costs that they'll have in order to purchase that mortgage. So what sometimes happens 
is if the buyer doesn't have that cash available, they may ask the seller to help them. And that's where, that's what's called a seller subsidy. And we also refer to that as closing cost assistance because that's usually what they're can, asking for. Can you break it down financially as a, like an example? For a purchase of, let's say, 250000 a buyer might be looking at three or $4,000 in closing costs. And let's say I only really have 3000 saved up. So, and I'll just go back. That's one reason to start early on with uh, getting prepared for your purchase because maybe it gives you a chance to save up some more money. But let's say you needed another $1,000. You could offer the seller, you're going to offer a sales price, and you can also ask for $1,000 in seller subsidy for that closing cost assistance. But this is where... I referred to as we look at all of the features of that offer. If you're going to ask for things like seller subsidy, we want to consider that in relation to all of the other terms. You mean buyer subsidies? If we're going to ask for buyer subsidies? I'm sorry, not not buyer, but it's it's part, it's part of how you craft your offer, and then the seller could come back and say, well, look, I'm going to eat a bunch of commission on this, so maybe I'll uh, negotiate sellers. I, I don't know. I and don't that's know. because confused. the seller has his own costs in selling the home, mm-hmm. which are going to affect the bottom line. If you, let's say you pay full list price for a house, that's not a bad thing, but not necessarily a bad thing, but the seller isn't going to net that price. So when we craft an offer, we want to consider when I'm working with buyers, the buyers are my priority. But when we talk about crafting an offer that gets a contract, it has to be appropriate enough for the seller to accept it. So and we take into consideration current market value, competition for that home, all of those things are going to impact how your offer is going to be received by a seller. Gotcha. Okay, so we have a ratified contract. Woohoo! We've, yes, we've gone ahead and we've scheduled our home inspection, maybe radon. Um, we're going to tour the property a couple more times to look at things that are important to us. And that you'll get to do that during your home inspection. Okay. So then um, let's assume the home inspection is okay. When does this, when do we contact our, um, our lender and say, here's what we want? Don't they have to do some sort of... As soon as you have a ratified contract, besides scheduling things like your inspections... You're going to provide, or your realtor is going to provide a copy of that contract to your lender. And your lender is going to work with you to submit your full application for your mortgage. So at that point, there's they can't go through that step 
totally without that ratified contract because everything's going to be based on that particular house at that address. So at that point, while you're getting your home inspection done and those kinds of things, your lender's also working on that end to process your loan application. Okay. Two quick questions on that. One, um, how how long does that process typically take? So let's let's talk about that. How long? Okay, first, I'm so scattered here. I'm just looking at my notes. Ratify contract. Is that when the lender? I mean, when the realtor changes the status inside MLS, or is that what the under contract is? It means there's a ratified contract on the house, or is that still too early? No, at that point where the buyer and seller agree to all those terms and sign off on everything, then that selling agent is going to change the status on the MLS so other people know it's under contract. One of the things we sort of alluded to before is whether or not there's a kick out on that contract, but chances are we're not going to address that at this point, it's not the norm, but it can happen. So once that contract is ratified and that house gets marked under contract, there's a lot of things happening. The buyer's doing those inspections or whatever else is needed to meet those contingencies that might be part of that contract. The lender's off processing information, ordering an appraisal on that home and getting that work done depends on the type of financing and the lender process how long exactly that takes but we're looking at a couple of weeks generally when we're talking about closing date for or settlement date for a purchase frequently we use about 45 days but it can be sooner sometimes it can even be longer those that will be determined between the buyer and the seller but you want to have at least a couple of weeks to allow for the financing piece okay okay that's that's good to go so let's assume the appraisal is good um but what happens home inspection is good appraisal is good we're still in a ratified contract Yes, and I should mention there's a third party, or at this point would be a fourth party involved, the settlement attorney. In West Virginia, all real estate transactions are settled with an attorney's office. So while you're doing your home inspection and making decisions based on that, while your lender is processing your loan application, that ratified contract also went to the closing attorney's office who is doing a title search on that property, preparing the documents for the transfer of that property. So there's a lot of work going on that is vital to you purchasing that property, but other people are taking care of it. Okay, that's great. All behind the scenes. And then when am I buying this house? Like, what's what's the deal? What what? I'm 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 almost impatient now, right? I'm well, excited. Well, yeah, because you want to get it done. Right. You've already made your decisions. If you 
um, are satisfied with the results of the home inspection, if the appraisal comes out good for this, if the, the appraisal is equal to or greater than the sales value, we are going to close either on that settlement date that we picked 30 or 45 days ago, but the contract also reads it could be on or before. But generally, we're driven by that settlement date. Okay. So on that date, traditionally, the sellers and the buyers come together at the attorney's office and sign a lot of documents in order for the transfer of that real property to occur. Okay. Okay. I'm going to back up again, Patty. That's okay. Because these things just, they come to my mind, these, these, these simple questions that I'm sure everybody listening to is like, Kevin, that's the dumbest question ever. Don't you know this? And it, that's the whole point is I think I know things, but I'm usually not totally correct. Let's say home inspection finds um, a small crack in the foundation that you couldn't see originally. Let's say uh, inefficient HVAC comes up. Let's say there's 50 things on this list and you're like, what? How, how could the house be this squirrely when you couldn't tell it? How, I guess that is my right as the buyer to come back with a counter offer against the ratified contract? With the contract, if you have a home inspection contingency, it says that you, the buyer, you have a, it will spell out the period of time that you have to conduct your home inspection. And if things are not satisfactory, then you can present to the seller a request for repairs. Is request for repairs the only option, or is a reduction in price part of the negotiation? It can be. Okay. And that I do refer to that, like the results of their home inspection, as a potential point of negotiation. So one of the things, you're hiring your home inspector to take a very intricate look at that home. And probably a lot of things that you, as the average homeowner or new to home ownership, wouldn't even know to look at. So depending upon the original terms of your offer, you look at those results of that home inspection. Because, yeah, there might be 50 things, and it sounds like a lot, but it could be anything from a loose switch plate cover to uh, ceiling missing off of a window or things like that. Some of those things might just be normal for a house of a certain age. So if you're buying a home that's 50 years old, or you see a lot of people, oh, I just love old homes. Well, old homes have old things in them. But if you crafted your offer taking into consideration the age of that home and realizing that it's not going to be perfect, then you may not have to negotiate further. Maybe your home inspection just confirmed that, yep, this is an old home. There's some things that are the way they are because of the age of the home. This is just common maintenance. 
even you said a small crack in the foundation. Well, that might just be because the home is of a certain age. Now, if you're talking about a big crack in the foundation, that might be a whole nother thing. But your kind of your role of your home inspector, you are looking for that person to find anything that affects the livability or the value of that home. Boom. Another question, Patty. What happens when you buy a house and even the home inspector has missed some items that are just silly? Um, an example would be, I'm trying not to use any of my examples because we all still know the, well, well, okay, so isn't there something called a home warranty? Is that what it is? A home yes. or a... And sometimes sellers offer home warranties as an incentive to buyers in the purchasing process. If they don't, sometimes a buyer will ask for the seller to provide a home warranty. Okay. So a home warranty in my simple brain says if the refrigerator stops working or if um, – is it like if there's a water leak? And that might be determined by the home warranty. You have to know what the home warranty covers. And there are – just like when you take out another insurance policy, like for your car, for example, you can add on uh, rental costs. So it just depends on what's covered with that policy. Traditionally, in a home warranty, things like your appliances are going to be covered. So, for example, if I sold a house and the refrigerator goes out in the first two months, do I get a phone call and they're like, hey, buy us a new refrigerator? Or they send me a bill? Or is, there, is it part of a, the financing? Or is it like an actual insurance plan? How, or is this not for this conversation? A home warranty... Um, and we could certainly talk a lot about this with an insurance person, but it depends on what your warranty covers. Let's say you purchase a home and you have a home warranty. Now, here's the thing. You can ask the seller to pay for a home warranty, which they pay a flat fee. It's a one-time fee. You get 12 months of coverage. And that, let's say, this home warranty covers your appliances. Two months after you live there, the refrigerator breaks. What you do is contact the warranty company. I do or the seller does? The buyer. The buyer does. And Will, when we talk about settlement, once you sign those papers as a buyer and accept that home, you're accepting it in the condition that it's in. So after closing date, everything in that home becomes your responsibility. So if the refrigerator goes out and you have a warranty, you contact the warranty company. They send out their representative to decide, can it be fixed? If it can't be fixed, it'll be replaced. So it just depends on that warranty. Does your coverage cover plumbing and other things? Okay. You can see why that would be a pretty good question. Mm -hmm. Definitely a good question. You just wonder... Am I going to get a call that something broke and I had a home warranty? Okay. Wonderful. I think I lost track where I am in the buying process, but I'm pretty sure appraisal's good, home inspection's good, counter offers have been accepted on whatever level 
it has to be based on the home inspection, um, whether the price was adjusted or the price is the same, but the seller has agreed to repairing things and been able to prove that they were repaired appropriately. Um, what's next? Formal, my notes say formal commitment, but I'm not totally sure what that means. That formal commitment's going to come from your lender. Oh. Remember, your lender's been working behind the scenes, processing stuff. Um, they have the appraisal. They send that through their underwriting department. Eventually, all of those things come together, and the lender's going to say, you are good to go. Good to go. Okay. We so call that your formal commitment. My next note says, one hour before closing. When we schedule, we put in that settlement date early on when we, you presented your offer and we agreed with the seller on what that settlement date was going to be. So we schedule that with the closing attorney's office. We're going to meet at the closing attorney's office. But before we go there, just before you sign all those papers to buy that house, we're going to do a final walkthrough so that you get to see that the house is still in the same condition as it was when you were there for your home inspection. Can we use the example of the townhouse that we sold? Sure. As what could happen on a final inspection? Yes. So the, buy, the buyer of the townhouse Jenny and I were selling did their final walkthrough and somehow between home inspection and final walkthrough, the uh, the microwave microwave went bad. So that's a very very last minute negotiations there, correct? And it could be something like that happens. Now in your case, that they did the final walkthrough a couple days before. That's right. Which is not the norm but sometimes just based on people's schedules that happen right but that can be a little risky for a buyer which is why we usually go right before we go to closing so let's say that happened right before we went to closing the microwave's not working then we can right there in the attorney's office have a negotiation and noting the microwave's not working, we can deal with the seller right then and there. Maybe the seller will say, all right, I'll give you $250 for a new microwave. And I, rem I remember we, we looked into it and to get a matching microwave that matched the brand and model line of the complementing set. It was going to be like a three-week order, like it was a special order item. So we weren't able to accommodate otherwise we would have to install a substandard or non-matching version so then that's when i guess we told you that and then you talked to their realtor and i want to back up again through all these offers me as the buyer and typically i, I assume the sellers aren't actually negotiating with each other we're talking to our realtors on what we how we feel about things the realtor helps us confirm or whatever but basically, you become my agent to talk to their agent professionally so that we don't have to carry that burden. Correct. Uh, and you'd, you'd kind of translate what, how, what our concerns are and how the offers and 
Okay, good. So it's, I'm it's, working as your representative. Right. Again, you're still making all the decisions, but I am working through those, presenting those, making requests on your behalf. And then typically the only time I would ever see the seller is at the law office. Traditionally, yes. Okay. Okay. This is really good. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm really understanding quite a few more intricacies. Final walkthrough. The checklist is good to go. The home is as it's supposed to be. Um, I understand why it's last minute, you know, because you don't want to take on a house and just let it sit there. You don't want to do a checklist before until right before you buy it. Um, Anything could happen. Sure. So <clears throat> uh, we're signing paperwork now. Like that's the thing. We go to the attorney's office and we, I sign my set as a buyer. Seller sells their set as a seller. Are we cutting checks? What are we doing there? So depending upon what's going to happen and the buyer and seller come together, yes. Buyer signs a lot more documentation than the seller does, mostly because a lot of the paperwork that you're signing are things related to your loan. So there's a lot of paperwork there for your lender. The seller eventually signs... Hold on, and the attorney is the one giving you the paperwork and explaining what it is, or are you still in that process? I am there okay. as a representative, as I am through the entire process. So if something comes up, we can handle it. But at that point, the attorney is driving the closing. That's where the meeting, where we all get together, we call it the closing or the settlement. But the attorney is uh, working through the paperwork with the buyers and the sellers. Okay. And the cost of those attorneys are folded into closing costs yes both sides the buyers and the sellers have some legal fees the buyers have some based on kind of the transaction that you're picking up and getting the seller pays for some of it on the selling side so there are legal costs for both sides i have to say going through this process just in this conversation i'm starting to pick up on the anxiety i have when i am buying or selling a house because I feel like it's happening pretty fast at that meeting. Um, I guess in a lot of cases, the closing costs are part of the financing, correct? Sometimes they can be. Otherwise, you're just stroking a check to... Sometimes buyers will bring money to the closing table to pay for their closing costs. So it just it depends on all of those terms and how they come together and working through that contract. But if you, as the buyer, if you're bringing money to the table, you have to have that when you come to buy it, as well as your lender is going to send money today, these days I should say, the lender generally wires the funds directly to the attorney's office. Right, that reminds me, when I bought... My most recent house, I did write a deposit check. Like and a, one of the, I had to put a lot of money down. One of the points that we didn't discuss when we were talking about crafting an offer is an earnest money deposit. No, I mean, I had to, due to my financing, I think I had to... If you were bringing money for your closing costs... Like money down... 
so when you're crafting an offer, depending upon your financing, you may, depends on the type of loan, the type of property, and what you're eligible for. I see. There are sometimes ways that a buyer can finance 100% of their purchase, and that will be a great conversation when you talk with your lender. Gotcha. But depends on a lot of factors. Now, it's still okay these days to not borrow. 100% of what you're going to pay for a house. So you might have a down payment, which is different from an earnest money deposit. Right. I remember the earnest money and that um, that's kind of like, hey, look, I got some money. I'm so serious about this offer. I'm going to put $3,000 down or whatever number is traditionally the number for that area, I assume. And it might be based on, yes, what's common for the area, but it could also, right, we're talking about the current market, depending if there's a lot of other interest in that house, you may choose to maybe make a larger earnest money deposit. So oh, I see. That's why when we talk about all those different pieces of the offer, we really need to look at a lot of information for you to make your decisions. Well, that's great. Papers are signed. Somebody literally hands me the keys right there. That is when we really celebrate. That's awesome. And the work starts because now you have to move. I know, right? So that's really exciting. And I hope that this podcast has um, explained the process. I know I understand a lot more of it, and I probably could explain it to somebody else and get about... 75% it wrong still, but I feel like I'm I'm definitely more in the know in the process and the steps and truly why you want to have a realtor and have a realtor early as well as the right lender. Um, so I, I feel like this podcast um, definitely helped me understand the, the buying a house process and understanding some of the misconceptions, with which I see I think can seem obvious, but it's easy to to get caught up in the process. So I would say, Patty, I want to thank you for being here and, and explaining this to me and, and helping me really break it down to what I think is a very elementary level. But um, I guess one final question is, is why should somebody who's considering buying a house, why should they pick Patty Sherwood as their realtor? This should be the easiest question. <laughs> so... I would consider what I bring to the table for a buyer, and that is certainly all my experience and expertise. I've been working in real estate for almost seven years. No two transactions are alike. And that's, that's full-time? Full-time for a little over four years. So as I've built my business, I've been dedicated to just that, building a business, serving my clients. And it's not about me, though, in the process. It's about helping people get to where they want to be. Break back a little bit. And, and really, I don't want to take too long on this, but you're saying that you're running a business. Explain to me a little bit more the details of what makes being a realtor full-time truly a business 
So I am associated with Long and Foster is my brokerage, and I am proud to be associated with that company. They focus on family excellence and service, which is what I do. So when I enter into a working relationship with a buyer or seller, and many of them are people I already know, because most of my business comes from people I know and people recommend me because of the success that we've had in the past. So I look at that as not um, just a business transaction, but I'm committed to building lasting relationships with the people that I buy and sell with. So I'm interested in them as a person, in their goals, in their dreams, and I work to fulfill those things. It's not, even though um, I'm a business owner and I run my own business and I'm really an independent contractor and I don't get paid unless there's a successful transaction, my focus is always on the needs of my buyers and sellers and making those things happen. Okay, thanks. So other reasons why Patty Sherwood should be your choice for realtor? I understand the market because I spend a lot of time knowing the market. I only do work, I should say, 99% of my work is in Jefferson and Berkeley counties of West Virginia. In those two counties, the market is completely different. So I make it my responsibility to know the differences, what commonalities are. So I spend a lot of time researching and following the market so that when those buyers need to craft an offer or sellers are ready to put their house on the market, they have the most current and accurate data to make those decisions. And that, to me, is a big driver. I don't leave things up to chance. And the other piece is I'm all about enjoying life and enjoying the process. And as you said early on, buying and selling a home is very stressful. And I understand that. But I'm still committed to enjoying the process and enjoying the people I work with and having a good time. Nice. I remember you know, Jenny and I are big fans of you and John's. And one of the things about working with you that's made it so easy to buy or sell a house is that your communication is professional and clear. And you, you answer emails in a timely manner. You answer texts or phone calls with the questions that we have. You don't make it feel like our questions are dumb. For example, this podcast. Um, but what's great is that you really are there not just to make your money or to sell the houses or, or, or whatever people think that realtors do, but you're there to actually participate in the process and to create a lasting relationship. And I think that's really what, I can't say that's what makes you different from others because you're really the only local realtor I've worked with, but it is a service that you provide to us that is um, 
all-encompassing and global. There's there's not much that we have to worry about, and we'll ask. We were willing to ask questions if we didn't understand something instead of just letting it go. But I feel like that is what makes working with you a um, a an enjoyable process, even though it could be stressful. I mean, you see, you saw me and Jenny go through some challenges with our deciding what house to buy. And I can only imagine the amount of emotions you have to watch happen with other families and how that goes. And I really feel like you were there for us. So was there, is there anything else that you feel like sets you apart? Well, I appreciate that you commented on the communication because one of my core values is to provide consistent and candid communication. I don't tell people what they want to hear. I tell people what they need to hear to make those important decisions. So I look at it as, um, again, I'm not making decisions for my clients, but I'm empowering them by giving them the information they need to make confident decisions for themselves and for their future. Because I'm looking for people to love their home and love their life, and that's part of the process that I work with them through to identify what that looks like so that we can go after it. You know, and when I think about it, when I'm referring you as a realtor, I always don't always, I don't always know the perfect details of what I'm talking about, except for what I've experienced specifically, which was the communication, how thorough it was, your ability to explain the documents that we were signing. And we had one uh, purchasing was different than selling. Purchasing seemed to, they were just both different, totally different experiences with you, but both positive, but ultimately I tell people that you really know what you're doing, but I also mentioned that you were, weren't you the head of some sort of board or organization for a while or still are? So I have served as a director on the board of directors for the Eastern Panhandle Board of Realtors. And I just finished up my year as past president, so I was president two years ago. And that, to me, represents the commitment to my profession. This isn't just a job for me. This is my career, and I treat it as a profession. So I am involved in my local Realtor Association, which is the Eastern Panhandle Board of Realtors, and committed to that, as I am involved with our local Chamber of Commerce and those kinds of things, because that's what professionals do. So I am about promoting my profession for maintaining the ethics and the um, image of my profession. So I do, I would say that does set me apart from other people in that this goes beyond just a job. Sure, I got it. Well, I, I think that's great, and I can't thank you enough for coming on here and being on my podcast. I always um, enjoy spending time with you. Thanks. Um, if people wanted to get a hold of Patty Sherwood, how do they do that? So you can call me. Phone number? 
You can text at that same number. You can send me an email at patricia.sherwood at longandfoster.com. And I'll just put a plug in here for Long and Foster. We've recently, uh, as an organization, gone to multi-step authentication for emails. Fraud is a thing, including in real estate transactions. But my company, Long and Foster, has taken the proactive step of initiating multi-factor authentication, which just makes it harder for uh, people with bad motives to access my email and by virtue of that, my client's email. So nice. I'm looking out for people, even in my email. Nice. And then do you have a website or anything like that? I do have a website, and that is Patricia Sherwood at, I'm sorry, Patricia Sherwood dot, the letters L-N-F dot com. Okay. People can search the multi-list from there, can connect with me from there. And uh, see some pretty pictures, too. Well, that's great. That's great. Is there anything you want to share about upcoming events or any places that they could meet you? Um, I assume you're at Chamber of Commerce events quite often, but... Frequently attending Chamber networking events, um, women's network events. Uh, I'm out there. I'm going to be participating in the uh, Chili Cook-Off at uh, St. James later this month. So if That's you great. look for me, you will find me. Awesome. All you right, can Patty. also contact me through uh, Kevin Brackens. That's true. I do have your contact information. And we will share that in the uh, notes for this podcast. Well, Patty, thank you so much. We went over on time that I was projecting, but I really... It's amazing you could talk for an hour and a half just about the buying process. And maybe it's just because I'm not picking up on the No, I the can steps. talk for a day and a half okay. on the buying process and still not cover everything. And that's why you want somebody to... Uh, trusted advisor to help you along the way. All right, Patty. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. I would like to thank City National Bank in Ranson, West Virginia. They have graciously allowed me to record this podcast in their conference room. City National Bank is a full-service community bank that provides an array of financial services. They offer a range of free checking accounts and saving products, savings products, for both consumers and business customers. City National Bank also offers competitive low-rate and low-cost lending products for home equity lines of credit, consumer and business loans, including no-down-payment mortgages. I personally bank with Melissa Knott at City National. She truly takes care of my business and personal banking needs. She can be reached at both the Ranson and Charlestown branches in Jefferson County, West Virginia. Check them out at www.bankatcity.com.